0: New York Councilmember Natasha Williams, welcome to An Honorable Profession. Thank you for having me. Let's start with how are things going in Queens? How are things going in New York City? It is a city that is on the world map, but give us a sense of what things are like on the ground right now.
1: Yeah, people say it's the city that never sleeps, and it's true. There is something happening at all times of the day. I have somewhat of the privilege to Represent more of a suburban part of New York City in mean, Queens, and things are somewhat quiet here. But we're really excited about a neighborhood plan that we're working on. I would say that's the biggest highlight of the community, the Jamaican neighborhood plan. And we are really looking at over three hundred blocks in the community, and working with community stakeholders to say, how can we build housing? How can we increase economic opportunities? How can we make sure that we have adequate schools? for people currently in the district, but also for people we hope can come into the district as we work to build more housing.
0: So you you mentioned that City Never Sleeps and having constituents who never sleep means that being a council member is a hard job. So like when you're engaging with the community at that scale, how do you do it in a way that you can get real qualitative and quantitative data to shape these plans from so many people? (sighs)
1: That is such a good question. And I'll be honest, I've been a council member for two years, and I'm still trying to figure out. I will say boundaries make the world of a difference. (laughs) And as much as I am a workaholic and I want to answer everything, and I want to be responsive. I ran actually on a platform. I didn't make many promises, but I promised to be responsive, transparent, and accessible. Because it doesn't matter where you fall on the ideological spectrum. I believe all people, community people, folks want to see their elected officials be responsive, transparent and accessible. And so for a person who ran simply on those three things, I'll tell you, I'm always trying to do those things, which can be tough. And so for me, I have learned to compartmentalize and I've also learned to really lean in on my office. I'm thankful that we are able to hire multiple people that work in the office, and really sort of sharing the burden (laughs) with my team and being honest and realistic about what we can and cannot do is how I've tried to address as many issues as possible in the district.
0: Can you give us a little overview of like how New York City is governed? Like, What's the structure? How much power does the council have? What does that look like? And then how do you as a council member fit into that, that decision making?
1: Oh, these are these are some really good questions. <laughs> it's like Civics New York City, New York City Government 101. That's right. So, New York City has seen a transition in our municipal body over time. It used to be a situation where there was citywide council members. It used to be a situation where the council didn't have too much power and it was another entity that had tons of power, but when they revised the charter, They created a body of 51 people, and we are sort of co-governors of New York City with the mayor, but by way of our city charter, the mayor, it's a strong executive body. You know, in transparency, it's not a strong council body, but it's a strong executive body, and our functions primarily really rest on oversight, so providing oversight on the many city agencies and mayoral offices that get set up. And also working with the mayor to pass uh, a budget. our100 our plus billion dollar budget we pass every year. We work with the mayor, we pass the budget, he submits the budget, but we work with him to ultimately vote on and pass the budget in June. So I would say our duties really primarily function as an oversight body, making sure there's a, a balance, a check and balance on what our city agencies are doing, what the mayor is doing. I mean we do that by holding hearings we do have some forms of subpoena power although we have rarely used it when we do have subpoena power if you know we find any issues or malfeasance with the work and implementation with our city agencies
0: and 51 people and new Yorkers are not known to be quiet and passive so like how do you build a coalition to move your agenda through on a body that large
1: so i guess i am somewhat thankful this body that i came into is the first majority women body ever and not that all women are the same and not that we all feel the same but i think there is a shared collective vision that we have as women and we're in the majority so there's a lot of shared priorities that we all share i would say this is a council that's also largely folks of color the speaker is the first black person to be the speaker and the first black woman For that matter, to be the speaker of the council. She also is my neighbor. So, when I think about the unique needs of the larger Southeast Queens community, she and I share a lot of those unique needs. And lastly, we're a pretty progressive council. We actually did pick up a Republican seat. I tell people all the time New York City is much more purple than you think. But, you know, nonetheless, we are a pretty progressive council. And when I say progressive, we do have people that are on the far left side. But a lot of the people on the council are really in that sweet median. And I know that's, that's really important for New Deal. And so I'm very fortunate because it's quite easy to find a lot of synergy because I'm in a council with people who, for the most part, the majority of the folks think very similarly to me.
0: So prior to getting elected to office, and I want to hear about that run for office, but your prior service involved being one of the organizers of the Women's March working in the New York State Legislature, and really advocating to have more diverse views in government. Can you talk about what that means in having a majority women council for the first time in New York City's history leads to different policies and different conversations?
1: Absolutely. Representation means everything. I think about some of the first things that this council did. There were certain bills that were languishing in the council for years around around maternal access and mortality, around abortion care. I mean, we mobilized so quickly when we saw what was happening across the country in the court cases around Roe v. Wade to really strengthen reproductive access and resources in New York City. And I don't think it would have happened as seamlessly, no shots to men, we love our men, as seamlessly if we didn't have a majority woman council. And I, I think that speaks to representation. And so you do see a wide breadth of understanding and a, a different type of approach to the many complex issues that we face here in New York City. And I've always seen myself as a person in the intersection. So you know, many people that don't know that I've had this large government background might look at me as like some type of activist. But you know, a lot of my activist friends know that I actually been working in government for some time, but really understand sort of the inside-outside game and how the activist world could interact and partner to push the decision makings we want to see, but also how decision makers could be more open to what people are saying on the ground to really speak to the needs of the people. And sometimes I don't think that happens. I think government tends to speak in an echo chamber, and when you have diversity, diversity, And when you have openness and when you have participation and deliberation in our democracy, I think that government can better reflect what people want to see and what people need.
0: Can you make the case? I mean, for someone who's an activist right now and is frustrated with many different policies at whatever level of government, but they're like, I don't know if I can run for office and serve in institutions and I'm going to have to compromise my values and do a bunch of things like, What was the choice for you about working within the system versus working outside of it?
1: I love that question. I think that somebody has to do it, right? (laughs) We all can't be in the same places working for social change. On the outside, so much of the outside is trying to push and influence the decision makers, whether it's an executive, a president, a governor, a mayor, whether it's a legislative body, whether it's a policy decision at an agency. Externally, we are pushing decision makers to make decisions that we think would best suit us. And so we need to have allies in all spaces and places. And I always say, if a person like me or someone else that is even more of an activist, because for a while I struggled to even attach myself to being an activist, I don't know, I feel like I just didn't have enough street cred. So even folks who truly live day in and day out in the advocacy space, if we don't have, again, this goes back to diversity of voices, then we can expect the same thing. And so it's tough. And when you're inside of the game of government, I think you have to do things differently. But I think you still can play a critical role in pushing the needle and at the very least, adding a different type of thought process into a space that typically thinks the same and has created itself to continue to think the same. Like I always talk about how I hate bureaucracy because bureaucracy only perpetuates status quo. And so we know government was designed to be stable, right? It was very smart. You know, they didn't want someone to come and be able to completely like mess up this great nation. And so we created it in such a way to Be flexible to change, but not too much change. And so when you have a system like that, it becomes very hard to see other viewpoints. And so I always encourage people, I know it's hard and I know you may not like to do it because I know sometimes I don't want to do certain things or have certain conversations, but I just always think about, well, if I wasn't here or someone else like me wasn't here, then you can guarantee that what is happening now will be the same.
0: So tell me about that decision to run and your race to be elected. How did you enter that process? What surprised you about that process? Advice for people who you may be just convinced to cross over and work within the system? Tell us about that experience.
1: I ran for an assembly seat. I have been working for government for some time. And I remember going to this conference the year I ran for the assembly Donna Brazil was one of the guest speakers and she said this whole beautiful speech about if not you who if not now when and i'm like i love that (laughs) you know (laughs) i don't know like i just you know people can like go back and forth about whether or not speeches mean something but like i Don't really remember what I ate yesterday, but I remember her saying that and it just stuck with me. And unfortunately, the assembly member in my district had passed away in the seat. And so there was an open seat. And, you know, I think it's one thing to run against an incumbent. I think it's a different like political game and flexibility when a seat is quote unquote open. So I like had Donna Brazile's words in my head. And so I ran for the assembly seat. No money, no nothing. No one supported me. I taught myself van. I was my own fundraiser, my own field director. I was cutting turf. It was absolutely crazy. I like literally took out a personal loan to live and to donate to myself. And I lost by 200 votes and I never thought about winning, but I was like so heartbroken that I lost by so little because it's like one thing to not see yourself win. It's another thing to like lose, but lose so like, (laughs) so, so, right. And so I would say, you know, and it was the Trump year, by the way, it was 2016. And I think that bug, they always say, like, once you run, you kind of like always have that bug that you can quiet, but it's always there. And I always say, and I know I'm like very long winded to get to here, but I always say if I would have won that race, I wouldn't have had the opportunity to be a major part of history because we know Trump got elected. You know, I lost the primary. The primary was in September. Trump got elected in November. And then quickly after that, things started mobilizing for the Women's March. And so to be able to say that I played a significant role in the Women's March and to be able to say that part of who I am now and part of my credibility (laughs) largely comes from my experiences working for the Women's March, I think was really important and really cement sort of this advocacy and activist part of who I am. And again, having that bug, I started working for the Port Authority. On the JFK Redevelopment Project, I had never worked directly in my district. I worked state, I worked nation, but never directly locally. And one thing I learned, tying back and then coming forward, one thing I learned in the assembly race, all politics is local. And I don't think I realized that as much, especially in my district, where people want to know where you went to church, who your mama is, you know, who your grandma (laughs) is. It's very localized. And so, you know, I started working locally in my community. I didn't think much of it. Before I took the job, my congress member said to me, like, hey, you know, I asked him how, how he felt about it. And he's like, Hey, if you decide to ever run again, you, you know, you'll be vocal in the community. And I was like, Okay. Didn't think about it. Another seed planted. And we have term limits in New York City. So again, there was a seat open. And at this time I had been working locally, extremely aware of the issues. I had joined the local community board. I was not a part of the community board before I ran for the assembly. And I looked at the the fields of people running and I'm like, Donna Brazil came in my head again. I'm like, well, I mean, I've been doing the work before. I, I barely, barely lost. You know, maybe I should throw my hat in the ring. And so it was just one of those things where I felt like I still obviously had that itch. And I then felt like, wow, like local government. The things that I thought I wanted to do at the state level, local government really has more of a deeper impact on the day-to-day lives of our community. And I didn't even realize that until, again, working locally, fully embodying all politics is local.
0: And now that you got elected, congratulations. Losing by 200 votes, that's rough. But then it gives you this opportunity to work on the Women's March. It gives you an opportunity to get elected to city council. What has surprised you about the job at the local level? Having worked at various state agencies, state government, other bodies, like how's it been?
1: Local government is scrappy. you know i think there's a level of prestige you know if you're a congressional member if you're a us senator even if you're like a, a state senator or an assembly member because you you know you travel to albany in the case of the state you know you travel to dc and like there's this idea that you know you're here but not here but for local council members you know i just have to go to city hall that's you know just a train right away and the issues that affect people again day to day oftentimes Your congress member cannot address it. (laughs) Your state senator or state assembly member cannot address it, Mr. Council member. And so, you know, really getting in the weeds of like, there is trash in front of my house that has not picked up. That's pretty scrappy. That's not, you know, important policy. (laughs) This is not an important budget decision. This is like, literally, can someone pick up this trash? Or people are speeding down my block. I need a speed bump. I need a, a stop sign. And while it, Seems sort of very small, and you know, I make the term of scrappy. Like, it is like the combination of many little things and many scrappy kind of things that have like such a huge impact on the day to day life. And in the case of my community, the quality of life that we have. And so, you know, I think that's been like the most illuminating thing. I'm a policy wonk at heart, so I can really get into like deep policy conversations. But the council is really not about that. The council is about can I send my child to the local school? Do I feel safe in my home? Can my block be free of speeding? And I don't want to see trash when I'm coming into my house. And so I would say that's been some of the most highlighting things learned while being in the council.
0: I remember when I first got elected city council, state senator who had been a council member, was told me like, when you go to the grocery store, buy your frozen food last. People are going to stop you and talk to you about all those issues, speeding in the neighborhoods, trash, whatever it is, parks, and your ice cream is going to melt if you grabbed it early on. So it's, it's true. There's nowhere to hide. You don't get to hop on a, in a car or on a plane and then leave that work to somebody else. So as you said, you are a policy nerd. What are your policy goals in the upcoming year that you're hoping to work on?
1: So in the upcoming year, I'm really looking forward to working on two different things. We have like a, a policy package that we're trying to put together that really affects the quality of life in my district. Everyone laughs when people ask me, like, what is one of the top issues in your district? And I say trees. And they're like, well, what? You know, people think New York City. There's like so many things that could be a top issue. And I'm like, in my district, it's trees because we have a lot of old trees and the old trees fall. They have a large district of homeowners. They fall. They get into people's sewer systems. They uproot their sidewalks. And so just one thing in the package is like, how can we get the parks department to better maintain the millions of trees in New York City, especially those trees that impact homeowners? You know, we know That there are trees in parks, they might be trees in commercial strips, but what about the tree that's in front of your house that's causing a complete nuisance for you and you are a working class person and you may not be able to afford $15,000, $10,000 to do something with your tree or to fix your sidewalk or to fix tree roots that are overgrown. And so trees... It's a running joke, The trees is a big issue in my district. And so we have some bills that are really urging the Parks Department to do a better job at how they maintain trees and the resources that are available specifically for homeowners, working class homeowners that really struggle to address some of these compounding issues as a result of our very old trees. And there's a few others, by just highlighting that. And then on the other side, as chair of the Civil and Human Rights Committee, we are really working on a Juneteenth package of bills. And the goal of those bills is really to just approve upon equity in New York City. So we already passed two of the bills. One was anti-racism training for everybody in New York City, all in terms of municipal workers, volunteers, and interns. And the other bill was a requirement for anti-racism and discrimination training for folks who are contracting with the city. There is another bill being put forth about how to have a point person within our Department of Education that's focused on diversity and equity issues within our public school systems. So I'm looking forward to us getting some of those bills passed and continuing to improve upon conditions for folks who are marginalized in our city, whether it's you know LGBTQIA folks, whether it's gender-related issues. This package really serves, even though it's a Juneteenth package and we are focused on like race, a lot of the things that are in the package really would help improve conditions for all folks.
0: That's why I love this podcast. I would not have guessed trees would have been the number one issue in New York City, but like you make a compelling case for how it impacts people on a day-to-day basis. So when you think about your leadership in this position and going forward, how do you think about where you can have the most impact, what the next step might be, where your time and interest and boundaries allow you to go? What's that decision-making look like for you?
1: I keep saying this, but I really love these questions because I'm like, oh, this is a good <laughs> question. I need, to, I need to know this for myself for real. The last two years, I've been trying to figure things out. I am one of those students where I can't just like skim through the book. I have to read every page to fully know what's happening. And so I have spent the last two years really trying to understand power and my power Perceived powers I may have, and also like weaknesses. What power do I not have, and how can I leverage other power or adjacent power to further an agenda or further some of my goals? And so, I definitely want to continue to build relationships both with my colleagues and folks within government that may not be in the council, and also outside influence. One thing I realized is I could be doing more to build relationships with the advocates to build relationships with some of the city's largest institutions that play such a role in how we do business in New York City. And so I'm really, the decision making there is how can I increase and better my relationships and do my own little form of organizing to make sure that we're addressing the issues that I feel are most pressing in New York City. I think as it pertains to the council, i mean continuing to sort of do what I've done, which is, you know, really establish myself as someone who was like thoughtful. And I'm happy and thankful to the speaker because I was recently appointed to the budget and negotiating team in the council, which is, you know, seen as a a pretty prestigious thing. Just a group of council members that really work hand in hand to help negotiate the budget with the mayor. And so I'm looking forward to figuring out how to capitalize on that opportunity and keeping my eyes open to other leadership opportunities. By way of just being thoughtful and collaborative, willing to listen to all sides to really figure out what is the best solution for all New Yorkers.
0: Congratulations on the budget committee. Can you tell us a little bit about how do you prepare for that experience? One, it's an enormous amount of money to have to decide where it gets spent. But then also, these are tough budget times, right? So it's not a time when you can just hand out a lot of money and make everyone happy. It's some hard choices ahead. So When you're appointed to this committee, how do you start preparing and what are you looking to do in that role?
1: Absolutely. So last year, I actually got appointed to the finance committee. And so I have been really intentional about studying. It goes back to like how I am as a student. And so really understanding the budget process, because what I realized is you could be so lost in the process itself that you don't even leverage the fact that I'm on this committee and then now on the special budget and negotiating team to really push forward things that are a priority to me and my community. So how I've been preparing is like studying. So, you know, looking at past budget hearings, having proactively setting up meetings with OMB, you know, which is our Office of Management and Budget, you know, that works directly with the mayor's office. I've had lots of offline and online conversations with the director of that office to understand from his perspective, because this is really the office we negotiate with, but just, you know, to understand from their office, how they view things, how they like to field or what makes best sense to them when they're fielding priorities from council members, what is the best way to communicate with them? Understanding budget language, because it's almost like a whole other language that, you know, where a person is not typically, you know, you don't understand budget forecast. You don't understand out years. You don't understand how the economist may word something proactively setting up meetings with the economists of the council. We have economists that work on staff, so setting up meetings with them. I'm also in the process of setting up a meeting with our chief financial officer internally at the council. I also have already had two meetings at this point with the Independent Budget Office, which is, you know, an independent body that was created by the city charter to provide analysis outside of OMB, which is primarily run by the mayor. And so Just really studying, trying to understand the process, trying to understand the language so that when I am in the position, because we've only had one meeting. So when I am in the position with the budget and negotiating team or as I go forward and really uh, strengthen my role on the finance committee, because they are sort of linked, I can listen out for things differently. And I could be more prepared to ask because what I find as council members, especially at these hearings, especially in these meetings, is are you asking the right questions? And are you leveraging power at the right time and in timely fashion? And I think that those goals are really actualized by understanding the process and being able to plug in.
0: Sounds like an amazing amount of work. And I, we, wish, we wish you well this year. And the preparation is real. Let's end on a fun question, which is, I got 24 hours of spending in Queens. What should I do to get an essence of your community?
1: Oh, man, that is such a fun question. All right. I would say if you like outdoors, you should go check out King Manor Park. It actually got redistricted into my district and it's a nice park. But the fun thing is that there's also a house and a museum of Rufus King. It's where he lived. And so you get to get a little bit of slice of history. I would also say you can walk down Jamaica Avenue. We have lots of fun stores and shops there. We also have the Jamaica Performing Arts Center and the Jamaica Culture, uh, the Jamaica Center for Arts and Learning. And so either you can go see a gallery, they tend to have different artists featured in their gallery, or if you're around when they have a performance, you can catch a performance. And I would say you can maybe round out your experience. Even though it's not in my district now, I always like to talk about The Door as a restaurant. We don't have a lot of restaurants because we're pretty residential, but I like to talk about The Door because it's a pretty known Jamaican restaurant fine dining Jamaican restaurant, cuisine and Queens. So I, I just always like to tout them and acknowledge their sort of long legacy in the district.
0: Love that. I love that. All right. I'm planning my trip, not in January, but <laughs> maybe when the weather gets a little warmer, you could do all that. I want to thank you for joining us today. We love having you as part of the New Deal. Love to get this perspective on New York City, which you know, I think we all watch from afar, but to get the inside view of how, how decisions are made and challenges are addressed, it's been wonderful talking today. Same
1: here. Thank you.
0: An Honorable Profession is a New Deal Leaders podcast. Thanks to the team at New Deal for producing this episode. We encourage you to bring honor to public service. And because we keep things honorable, no tax dollars are used in the making of this podcast.